How can English teachers move beyond merely diversifying their reading list and actually decenter whiteness in their pedagogy? Today on the show, Meg Goldner Rabinowitz joins me to talk about identity and literature. I'm Celeste Kirsch, and we are teaching tomorrow. Meg Goldner-Rabinowitz is an educator who works towards social justice in all that she does. I invited her on the podcast today to share with you her work on changing the way we see teaching in the English classroom. This talk with Meg basically gave me the inspiration to rethink my first unit of grade 8 English. She provides so many practical, concrete, and manageable ways to implement anti-oppressive practices in her teaching, so I am thrilled to get to share her with you today. I know you're going to get so much out of this episode, so I won't take up any more airtime. Here is the conversation that we recorded together back in July. Meg Goldner-Rabinowitz, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Celeste. Uh, So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're currently teaching, because you recently had a big move, um, and what you do professionally. So I will say that I have spent the last 30 years teaching at Germantown Friends School, teaching high school English, uh, teaching media studies, uh, teaching a bunch of electives that are probably more humanities based than just strictly English. And I've been at this, it's a Quaker institution, so I have had been profoundly shaped by uh, being in a Quaker school. A Quaker school has a kind of foundational principle of um, something deeply spiritual uh, in every individual. So it really is much more of a dialogue, teachers in dialogue with students, and much more inquiry-based um, than than um, kind of a set curriculum that I need to cover. Um, also, so I've been at Germantown Friends School for the last 30 years, but I have just this summer moved uh, to Seattle to become the assistant head of the Northwest School. Congratulations. Um, That's a huge deal. Very exciting. It's very exciting to bring a teacher perspective, like a veteran teacher perspective into an administrative role, because I think there is so much about decision-making and conversations and um, implementing policies, practices, and procedures where I've where having a, an equity and inclusion lens feels really important. So just as the work that I had done to develop that lens over the course of my teaching career, it feels really wonderful to be able to apply it to, um, to administration. And of course I've been doing that for like a hot three weeks. So we don't, we don't want to, we don't want to have any like parade yet, but, uh, but it has been, it's, it's the schools, both, Germantown Friends School and um, the Northwest School both are deeply committed to social justice work, which is um, which is absolutely central to everything that I do. You know what? I will start that parade on behalf of the Northwest School <laughs> for you because I think it's such a great decision that they made to bring you aboard. Um, I'm sure Germantown Friends are just mourning your loss and they're having whatever the opposite of a parade is right now. <laughs> Um, I will say the other thing that I've been doing for the last 10 years is teaching uh, in the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania, working with new teachers and teachers who are coming in through a variety of programs. So Penn has a program working for the teacher education program, which is a one-year master's program, and that's a wonderful program. Um, So students are really immersed in in student teaching and being observed, uh, and I would teach them English methods. 
And I also did that in the Teach for America program. And I also did that in Penn has a boarding school program. So there was a way in which part of what part of this conversation about what revitalized me as a teacher was being in community with uh, people who were coming into the profession. I love that. It's obvious why you are so good at what you do, because you keep learning and you keep challenging yourself. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, I, uh, I sought you out for this conversation today because I, well, actually, I've met you twice now. So I met you the first time I came to your school at Germantown Friends, and I'm sure that you get a lot of visiting teachers that come in and ask questions and are just doing the tour of like what you guys do at Germantown Friends. The second time I met you was this past December, and I didn't even know it was you at first. I just saw the title of your presentation and I'm like, I need to go there. Like that's exactly where I need to be right now. Um, so the presentation that you did at the People of Color Conference was called Decentering Whiteness in Upper School English Classrooms. Um, just the title is such a good mic drop. Like it, I'm, it was a full session. There was a lot of people there. Um, and it, so I took this out of your workshop description because I think it's so good and I'm just going to quote directly what you probably wrote. Um, the workshop is all about adopting a complete reimagining of the humanities with whiteness and Western civilization representative of one perspective out of many, if not an optional addition. Yeah, it's so well crafted and obviously there's a lot of English teachers who created this workshop. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about this. The question I want to start with is, why is it not enough to simply diversify the curriculum? I think that the when you're building a curriculum, the reason why it's not enough to diversify it is because it isn't, in my mind, enough to add in um, authors to to point to prove a kind of a counterbalance. That instead of it being that we do white author, white author, white author, Toni Morrison. Um, that we, in, in fact, from the beginning of the course, we introduce the concepts of race, class, gender, socioeconomic class, uh, any other major religion, any other major identifier that may play out in the course of talking about literature and its contexts. So the reason why you, it's essential to do more than just diversify is the depth of conversations that are possible. If I come in and I identify myself as the teacher who has a certain positionality to the text, and I think of myself as a complicated person, right? So rather than being a perky, young, white English teacher, I am now a middle-aged, you know, English teacher, all of those things, and still white, all of those things really shape and inform the way we read text. So it's not enough just to add in a text by, a, you know, an author of color or um, by an author, a gay author. Like it, you really have to reimagine how you're teaching all of the texts together. Um, and I, I think of it a little bit the way Paul Gorski uses the phrase equity literacy. Um, they, they, you want to be equitable from the jump. You don't want to be um, not equitable, and then all of a sudden shift your practice and be like, now we're going to include other voices. So those other voices kind of have to be in the room from the beginning. Um, and, and I think there are lots of really imaginative ways to do that. Uh, so I'd love to talk more about that. Yeah, I, I'm curious, do you start by beginning by identifying yourself, like putting yourself into different identity um, affiliations to begin your year? And do you have your students kind of mark their own identities? I do. What does that I, look like? I, 
I do it in every context in which I teach. So it doesn't matter whether I'm teaching an eight-week elective or if I'm teaching a year-long class or if I'm teaching a class online or if I'm teaching graduate students. It yeah. doesn't matter where. For me, that that is the great beginning, which is and a way of and a way of not doing the additive approach of diversifying, but saying, look, diversity is in the room from here, September 1st, or whenever we're beginning. And so what I use, I have different materials that I'm happy to share, um, but I have different materials that I've used over time. One is something I've developed that's called the identity framework. And it really just is a list of identifiers. And for high, middle and high school kids, it's really wonderful because it includes everything, the, you know, the big eight, race, class, gender, socioeconomic status, religion, sexual orientation, all of those. But then it also lists things like what is your role in life or what are your strengths or what's your personality type mm. or what's your style or any of those things that where students after the first round is that they identify these different ways in which they see themselves. Um, but then they also work with the idea of whether they feel agency as a result of that or if they feel targeted as oh. a result. Um, so you'll have students and I've taught, I've used the identity framework in all white settings, right? Where it looks like, look, we don't have any diversity in the room. And it's like, yeah, you do. Cause you have so many different ways of looking at, um, at your identity that, that go not just racially that, that go beyond race. Um, there are other ones as well. There's one that's a wheel that comes from, um, diversity and social reading for diversity and social justice. That's a great resource. Um, and so there are other ones that are, that work really well. There's one that the anti-bias network has developed. That's all that's your social identity portrait. So there are lots of tools to use. And sometimes I use more than one mm -hmm. because different ones have, have like created different feeling in students, but I definitely also place myself in that exercise. So I'm doing it alongside the students. So you've just given me my first writing unit in English. Yeah. Like that's brilliant. So can you share those with me? And then I'll put those oh, links in the show notes so people who are listening can also steal some of those absolutely. ideas. I guess what I want to say too is that when I was going to school, I felt as a white, a young white woman, I, I felt like I, I was just normal, right? <laughs> the default, and I was taught by white teachers. They were just normal, right? And that, and really being able to interrogate that and know that that there there is no racial default of normal, right? It's you know it's what you're what you're being exposed to, what you're experiencing, and also that the that then when you introduce literature into the room, all of a sudden, like there's no normal literature, mm. right? It's I, I was talking yesterday to somebody about Our Town and the play Our Town, which I had to read in seventh grade. Hmm. And when I read it in seventh grade, I was like, I don't care if all of the characters are dead. Like, I, like <laughs> nothing to me. Like, because I hadn't, I just hadn't experienced mortality. But when I went to see that play as a 40 year old woman, I wept, hmm. right? Like our, our life experiences and what we're exposed to so so powerfully changes the way we respond to literature. So this idea that we could just introduce texts, you know, at, in a way that is um, and historical or without an understanding of, of all of the myriad complexities that go into reading that text, including our racial identities, but so many other of our identities. Oh, that's so, there's so many points that I want to talk from on that one, but it's, you're hitting something really powerful, I think, that we are not as white teachers, we're not neutral. Like, and in fact, there's been a couple of times with my students where I come out as a white woman and 
it's a there's a weird thing in the room after I say that like oh got it thank you for naming that and they clearly know that I'm white like that's not a mystery to them but there is something about claiming an identity like I am a queer white cis woman and I come from a lower socioeconomic background and I have a brother and I have a sister and la 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 like you just claim all the things yeah. some teachers resist that I think because the fear of vulnerability, like that they are going to claim an identity and it's going to, you know, open them up. Have you ever experienced anything where you or a teacher that you know has opened up with an identity and it's actually um, been like a little too risky for them? It's never happened to me, but I, I do. I, ha I have a number of colleagues who are very resistant to it, like okay. who would never do it for the reason that you're talking about it. Yeah. Like they, because I think even Celeste, even in what you just shared with me, like I have a million things that I want to say to you, right? And just the courage that it takes to name all of those identifiers. Um, each one of those is differently charged. Each one of those connects you to someone. Each one of those connects you to a different student in the room, right? But it also mm -hmm. models for them this courageous teaching of saying, here's who I am. I'm gonna, you know, I, I'm gonna stand in this truth of who I am. And and that that wholehearted truth and, and embracing of it. I, I don't know, I, I, in answer to your question, I know what it's done in my classroom. I know, and it, it's not like every kid is desperate to like unzip who they are and you know share everything. But just knowing that there's that permission there and that there's that framework. Um, it, in the classroom, I think it works really well. It isn't something that is a norm in faculty, right? Mm -hmm. across, across departments or divisions or, um, you know, there's there's a way in which I probably, one of my alums described me as like fuzzy. Like there's a way in which I'm probably, I'm not a, I don't think you can even say in 2018 a touchy-feely teacher because it sounds like you've done horrifying things. But I, I think I'm someone, maybe a better way to say to 2018 is that I have a lot of emotional intelligence. Mm. So I see, I see doing just what you just said to me, to us, about your identity as something that is, transformative in what it can do to conversations about literature yeah. because just as race is or our identities are not neutral this idea we you know we don't have um, a, a, a content neutral subject like yeah. every choice we make of every text we teach is is loaded is fraught mm. so um, and is discretionary I would argue so in, in the independent school well wrote in the realm of independent schools, it's wildly discretionary. And in the public school realm, there's still always a choice about how you teach, even if you're being told what to teach. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So let's, let's jump on that idea right now, because uh, let's say that there's a teacher who wants to kind of challenge the norm a little bit and to, like, I want to say, like, just like go out of the, or go out of their comfort zone. But perhaps they have like a teaching partner that's really committed to teaching um, The Great Gatsby or really like we just do Catcher in the Rye every single year and that's what we do. So what kind of tips do you have for teachers who want to, in, in a way, decenter whiteness in their classroom, but they have some real barriers to what kinds of books they can teach in their class? So I think that one thing, the way that I was taught The Great Gatsby is The Great Gatsby, and this is, you know, taught, like taught and then retaught, was The, the Great Gatsby, this is the American dream, this is, you know, this is sort of aspirational, this idea that you can, you're a self-made man and you can do, you know, all of that. 
even though it was a tale of that derailing horribly, right? Um, but there are there are amazing strands in a book like The Great Gatsby where to, opportunities to talk about race and class and gender uh, in, in really powerful ways. So rather than thinking of Daisy's you know, super soft whispering voice as a, as a, you know, excellent, beautiful character flourish. It's also a way in which she is, you know, Ariel style having to sacrifice her voice to be, you know, to be in enormous, in the realm of enormous wealth. I love so, that you just brought the little mermaid in right now. That's perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Ariel's always with us. So then there's, um, and then there's Myrtle, right? Then there's this other woman who, who is the striking contrast, raises issues of gender and socioeconomic class. But my, maybe my favorite moment in The Great Gatsby in terms of teaching it from a decentering whiteness position is even doing something as closely scrutinizing. There's, a, I don't have the quotation in front of me, but there's this incredible moment when they're describing all of the fresh fruit that arrives at Gatsby's house every day or every week. And that what happens to that fruit, of course, is that it is it is juiced, right? It is turned into this amazing fresh juice. And there's a sentence in the book that describes the way that the juice is created is by the pressing of a thumb. And there's so much to interrogate in the sentence about the passivity of just the pressing of the thumb to create this juice. And it's like, who's pressing the, who's pressing the juicer, right? Who's doing that work. Where is the labor, right? So maybe that's a Marxist reading of Gatsby. Maybe that's just about socioeconomic status. Maybe that's just a way of plumbing this very, very white book in a way that opens it up to discussions around equity and inclusion, around presence and voice and agency. And so, like, go ahead, teach The Great Gatsby. You know, have that book be there, but also understand it's this really powerful vehicle for looking at um, at power and, and, um, and, and who has it and who doesn't have it. Yeah, if I'm hearing you correctly, I feel like you're saying it's not necessarily about who's in the book or who's writing the book. It's also who's left out of the book. So having that conversation of what is Fitzgerald not including here? Like what is, who is, who's hidden from view? Right. And I think that Toni Morrison's book, Playing in the Dark, she describes all many liminal figures in literature, right, who were just waiting in, in those thresholds to participate. And one of the texts that I think she explores she either explores it or after reading it, I reframed how I teach the Scarlet Letter, right? So you can, and, and for me, the Scarlet Letter is an incredible book to teach from the lens of voice and agency and transformation. But there are also these figures, these black figures in the woods, these these figures in the darkness. And it's, and it's a question of sort of what purpose do they serve? What role do they serve? Um, and, and so I feel like that's one thing that I think of is that kind of playing in the dark moment. Right. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and I guess it's also true for Jane Eyre, right? Like how do you approach Bertha Mason? Bertha Mason just becomes this kind of foil for Jane, but then what do you, you know, what is her origin story? Where does she come from? Um, and of course, wide Sargasso Sea takes that perspective, right? Like says, wow, this is such a rich liminal figure perspective. Let's just go all the way into that one. So I, I do think it's not just about jettisoning white texts and, and installing all texts by non-white authors, but it's really about radically shifting the way you approach texts by white authors and also understanding the kind of amorphous, um, vague nature of the word white. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. 
like you have to have such a strong foundation in anti-oppressive practices in order to be able to teach in this way and to be able to pick up a classic text and to look at it with this lens. So I'm so curious, what was your own journey towards decentering whiteness in your classroom? How did you get to be so good at this? That's so nice of you to say good at it, but I'm certainly trying. Um, well, I, I mean, good, I think, implies that there is some sort of end goal. So maybe I'll rephrase that yeah. because you're very, you're very skilled. And I see you as somebody who knows how to have these conversations and is comfortable having brave conversations around things like this. So how did you get to be this way, Meg? Yeah. So that's like that. I should probably write a book about this. Please. But, yeah. I would like to read that book. <laughs> but the, I would say that the some of the most important building blocks for getting to where I am today. One is that when I graduated from college, I had not read a book by a person of color. By so, college, like when you had finished college. Finished college, no yeah. book by a person of color. Like through high school, through college, no no book by a person of color. And then um, when I was getting my master's of education, the teach one of the teachers I had, Dr. Susan Lytle, was this incredibly transformative teacher. And really she was the first teacher who ever saw me and my potential. Like it, it's, a, I think people, um, it always feels like people had, you know, have a number of those teachers. I, I have one, right? Mm. And she was incredibly uh, influential and continues to be a lifelong mentor. And she, um, her children had attended Germantown Friends School and I had gone through the master's program and she was my teacher. And so she connected me to the, the, head of the English department at the time, Dr. Charlotte Pierce Baker. And Dr. Charlotte Pierce Baker, um, African-American woman who was the chair of the English department. And I interviewed with Charlotte and it was, you know, I was a young, perky, dynamic teacher who I think when I interviewed for the job, I was teaching my, mo my you know, model lesson. I was teaching a ninth grade English class and I used a song that was very popular on the radio at the time, which was Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror. Yeah. And I thought I'd use that. Thank you, Michael Jackson. I thought I would use that to teach metaphor. So I thought I was so cool. <laughs> uh, but by the same token, when I when I was hired to to teach, uh, I didn't I, you know, there was a vast amount African um, African-American literature was not something I had been exposed to. So at the very moment that I, that I felt I had a college degree, I had a job at a wonderful school. I also felt woefully uneducated, like woefully, like there wasn't, there wasn't a, like the, the, the medium through which I was going to learn, right. College or graduate school. That was, that wasn't there. And so what happened was I, I, absolutely immersed myself in everything that I didn't know. Right. So when I first began teaching, I was asked to teach a book by Jean Wakatsuki called Farewell to Manzanar. And it was about the Japanese internment. And I, I had no idea that there was a Japanese internment. So it becomes this situation where you, the summer before you're about to teach something, not only are you reading the book because you're going to be teaching the book, but how would you ever teach that book if you didn't know what the Japanese internment was? And I was someone who was raised Jewish who knew a lot about the Holocaust. So it wasn't like the time that the year was 1939 to 1945. It wasn't like I knew nothing about that. But what I knew was this slice of history. I had no idea what was going on in the United States with the Japanese internment. So even though I felt well credentialed and like I, you know, here I am coming into this wonderful job and I am perky and energetic, 
there was, I was so woefully uneducated and it felt really irresponsible to be teaching books about parts of history that I knew nothing. So I have to say that the most profound education for me happened in the 20 years, you know, after I graduated college. And one of the things that happened in those 20 years, those first 20 years was that I became expert at as many different facets of African-American history, African-American literature. I mean, I could, I could rock a Zora Neale Hurston unit. (laughs) I could, I could, you know, I could win a Toni Morrison prize. Like I, I, I won like the victory lap of how to teach those books in this beautiful, beautiful, richly contextualized way in terms of art and history and, and literature, just uh, all of it. And so I was, I was somewhat dismayed in my early years at how little I knew. Then I felt that I was gaining mastery. And, and if you had talked to me 10 years ago, I would have said, I, you know, I, 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 and I, I think I had a wonderful reputation with my students that doing a beautiful job with Zora Neale Hurston, with Toni Morrison. Um, and around 10 years ago, it became very clear to me that what I did was I would teach a white author, a white author, a white author, a white author. And then we would talk about race. We would be like, well, now we're going to talk about race because we're going to talk about Toni Morrison. Right. And around 10 years ago, I... You know, you sort of don't realize the crimes against humanity that you're committing as a teacher. I've committed them for 20 years. And so around 10 years ago, it was like, you know what? George Orwell actually has a racial identity. And so, yeah. so like, it, one, one thing that's happened for me also is that in my own professional development, going to things like the White Privilege Conference and the People of Color Conference have helped me understand my white identity and an awareness of that but also have helped me, I hope, to develop this sense of critical humility Mm. that no matter how much I know, I have to always be learning because literature is a shifting, growing thing. And, and, um, and there's no finite set knowledge that's going to, that I'm like set for life, right? Like I have to be constantly developing the areas that I don't know well. Um, so that's a little bit of my journey. I don't know if that's too much detail, but that's no, that's my point. That's not enough. I think that's a reason to write the book, to be honest, Meg. I feel like you've got a whole book in there. I was listening to something the other day that was saying that uh, literature, as opposed to any other kind of reading, actually makes you smarter and more empathetic. So I think that that's a really good case for why everyone should become an English teacher, because it's. Uh, I think that's probably the reason why you're so aware of humans. Like I want to say that English teachers are just more evolved than other teachers. We'll just say that. Well, I think, and I think for English teachers to know what they don't know and then to try and develop a sense of what they don't know. Mm -hmm. So I, and, and be seeking opportunities and also for English teachers to understand that they're really history teachers, that there's or culture teachers, because it's about, yeah. like, I teach English now, but I have a drama background. So I study theater history in university. And that kind of learning of like, oh, this is what was happening in the 40s. But this is the kind of plays, these are the kinds of plays that they were making, because this is what humans were doing. So it's really, you're studying humanity. You're studying yeah. human beings. Yeah, no, and I think humanities is a better term. You know, I think it, mm-hmm. I think because and 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 having theater in there would be really important as a as an art form where you're using words and movement uh, to convey so much. So I do think 
I do think that I just think the lines are much blurrier than we think. So let's uh, I'm imagining people who are listening to this today and there's a lot of teachers from Ontario who are teaching in independent schools who are listening right now. Um, And let's imagine a white teacher who is teaching in a predominantly white school with white administrators, white fellow teachers, and a lot of white wealthy parents who are all kind of just the stakeholders in their classroom. What are some really concrete tips that you might give somebody who's inspired, who wants to start decentering whiteness, but they don't know where to start? Like they're just kind of a little bit, maybe their lid is flipped, they're a little overwhelmed. What are some really basic things that they can do this year this month, this week in their classroom? So I'm going to, I think I'll just throw two ideas out there and I'm using two ideas that I've used, right? That, so I'm, I'm offering things that I've tried. Um, the one is that I'm a little obsessed with Adichie's danger of a single story Ted talk. Amazing. And, and again, I think that that goes back to this idea of even a white classroom being a, a multicultural space. Right. That is that that there are other ways of looking at that all white classroom other than just like we're all white and meaning we're all the same. Um, and so for me, using Adichie's Danger of a Single Story, both the TED Talk and the script of it with my students and and engaging with them, you know, where in the text, what speaks to them from the text, where where do they feel connected to the text? But also, what is the what are the dangers of a single story? Like, what does it prevent us from doing? And so, I think whiteness is a kind of single story that can be interrogated. Um, and then the other thing I would do is is really something that I've borrowed from colleagues who have I've worked with in the eleventh grade, and that is we have used a story. Uh, by Isabel Allende, that's End of Clay Are We Created. And we've used, we've paired that with Susan Sontag, an excerpt from Susan Sontag's On Photography. And I think that the, I'm using that as a model, both as like someone can go, if I were a teacher, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go do that. But the, um, but more importantly, what I'm trying to suggest is, is sort of start where you are right now. Start with the texts that you're using right now. What are the ways that you can pair those texts, that you can broaden those texts so that they are in dialogue with authors of color or with authors other than the author, the author him or herself, right? So it doesn't have to just be racially. It could be how do you pair that text? How does that text become in dialogue with something? And then maybe the third idea that I would throw out there is the idea of the sort of authorial text, like the idea that the text is this pure um, finite, um, sort of liturgical text. And instead, and I think theater would do this, you know, someone who comes from a theater background would, would want to do this, be more playful with the text. So what are the ways in which students can dive into a text, delve into it and extract lots of different things from it, um, that may or may not be in the teacher's edition of the text, right? Mm -hmm. Like I always, I always, I grew up with this idea that the teacher had the book with like all the right annotations in it. How do we, how do we move away from this idea that there are right annotations and wrong annotations, not right readings and wrong readings. I'm not talking about sort of wildly, you know, wildly misplaced interpretations, but how do we have students transact with text in ways that allow for, um, for play and experimentation. And I think in order to do that, you have to really move away from the idea of like, um, Flannery O'Connor would never do that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I think of my, uh, my son, Ethan's eighth grade English experience where 
the teacher was talking about William Shakespeare and something that was going on in the play. And Ethan raised his hand and said, like, did you ever go to Shakespeare's house? It was like, way to bring pride and shame to your family. But, <laughs> uh, but I do think there's a little bit of that for our students, right? When we, the teachers, are always translating, like, this is what the author meant, this is what the author meant. Uh, the only way for a text to really be a good teachable text in 2018 is if students are able to discern what the author meant in a way that's meaningful now. Yeah, or what they are, yeah, not even what the author means, but how are you reading the author? Because it doesn't even matter what the author was trying to say. It's like, this is how you're reading it. Like the meaning exists somewhere between the text and your brain. Like it just kind of gets created there. Yeah. All right, so we're coming to the end of our convo and I wanted to close with a ticket out the door. So we do this on all of our shows and it's basically just a series of random questions that you know might have something to do with what we're talking about today, but they're just a fun way for people to get to know who you are a little bit better. Okay, okay so first question is, what is your favorite book to read to young people? Any age, what is your favorite one? A uh, mixed-up file of Basil Lee Frankweiler. Yeah, that's a really good one. <laughs> what is the best gift you ever received as a teacher? Uh, I received a turtle that was crocheted by one of my um, my students at the Punahou School in Hawaii's grandmother. Wow, I thought you were going to say an actual live turtle. I'm like, that's really bold for them to give you a live animal. That's beautiful. If you weren't a teacher, what would you be doing for money? Oh, I had thought of being a lawyer. I would like to have worked, working towards social justice in another way. Yeah, I could see you doing that. You'd be great at it. Uh, who is your favorite edu celebrity? Uh, that's such a good question. Maybe Atal Gwande. I mean, I think he's pretty, I just think he's brilliant in everything he's written. And he has a great TED talk too. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes for a really great article he did. He was he was the one who did that one on surgeons and mentorship. And yeah, that was a really great one. Uh, the, what's the first thing you do when you come home at the end of the day? Uh, walk my dog, usually. What kind of walk dog do you have? Jack is a Wheaton Terrier, no, and I usually no. walk my dog or take a walk. Nice. What are you going to miss the most about Philadelphia? Oh, the people. Just my entire network of people um, and the beauty of autumn. I, I imagine Seattle has autumn, but I, I, the, fall, the fall in Philadelphia is extraordinary. Yeah, I think it just rains a lot out on the coast, so it's a different kind of fall experience. Okay, so the final question that I like to ask people is, what is the future of learning? I think the future of learning is going to encompass all multiple intelligences, all different types of learning. So there are all these niche conversations around experiential learning or competency-based learning or student-centered learning. And I, I think that the future of learning is gonna be something that actually um, involves an, all of our awarenesses uh, around emotional intelligence and other intelligences. I, like I don't think strict book learning is, uh, is gonna be the way of the future. That sounds amazing. I'll sign up for that future. Thank you so much for joining us today, Meg. I'm so thank grateful you for, for having, like, I'm just really excited to get to share you with people that I know. So thank you. Of course. Thank you so much. So 
I'm slowly discovering that the coolest thing about starting up your own podcast is getting to reach out to people that you loved seeing at conferences and getting to have more inspiring interaction with them. Except this time I get to ask whatever I want and I get to share the conversation with people like you. Meg, I wish you all the best in your new role at the Northwest School and I can't wait to find out how your parade went because it is clear that your new community will be roundly celebrating you in no time. If you like what you've been hearing on the show, please rate this show on iTunes. We're just a baby podcast trying to get on our feet, so every comment and positive rating helps us grow and get into the ears of more people. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep questioning the norm, and remember, we are teaching tomorrow.